Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, we are the Art Crimes Division. We're talking heists, forgeries, and other criminal acts within the world of the arts, and especially antiquities. So, Amber, is there something you'd like to yell about triumphantly for a minute before we uh, get into the rest of the episode? Yeah. Um, well, I definitely have for the last going on two months uh, <laughs> that Hobby Lobby got got. They sure did. Well, specifically the Green, Steve Green at all, the Green yes. family, the um, the Hobby Lobby magnates. Yes. Um, and so for... Um, Listeners, longtime listeners and knowers of me will um, <laughs> know that I have a particular interest in the Museum of the Bible, which is a museum here in Washington, D.C. that was founded in 2010 as sort of a nonprofit before it became a physical museum by uh, Steve Green and the Green family heads it up. A couple of years ago, it became a real brick and mortar museum. And um, very much for profit now, right? Uh, no longer well, a nonprofit? <laughs> they charge admission. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> so they started out, the they, they had like a, I don't know, like a grand opening sale or something where it was free admission, but now they have, um, they, they do charge admission. And it, it seems like, one of those things where there's admission and then for special exhibitions, there's an additional cost. Mm -hmm. um, but 25 bucks is... Seems like a lot. That's a, a little steep, um, especially when you're run by Hobby Lobby. Squajillionaires, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so the Museum of the Bible is... Um, is is imagined and sort of designed to be um, a museum looking at the Bible as as document and as history and its its impact on history and society and especially America because it's in Washington D.C. and so it, it looks at it focuses very heavily on Protestant and Catholic manifestations of the Bible uh, and some Jewish and um, that's about it. Yeah, the idea um, is because the Greens are are very sort of fundamentalist. They are the flavor of Christian that like just keeps repeating that they are Christian. Um, right. It's it's a very like evangelical Protestant biblical literalist kind of yes. approach, and it's a and that's a flavor of Christianity that I'm intimately familiar with. Uh, the, they they don't they haven't designed it to be proselytizing. Mm -hmm. But there are certainly narratives that are privileged over others. Like they, like there's no representation of um, Orthodox Christianity or um, the impact of the Bible on Islam or even any number of alternative exegeses or 
They don't cover like the Apocrypha and stuff like well, that. Uh, yeah. And, no, no, certainly not. And and then also um, like there are different schools of interpretation within Protestant Christianity, within within Judaism, certainly. And so it's it's not as comprehensive as one would think that maybe the Museum of the Bible would be. Um, but no, it's they, the Museum of our Bible. Like that's it, it's, it's the Museum of the Greens Bible. Well, and I've read I've I've read like critiques and and, um, and responses by biblical scholars of the place that say that it's really a, a museum of American Protestantism, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting. Yeah. So tell me but, how they got got. Oh yeah. So well, <laughs> there are a couple ways. <laughs> So, um, and so it's been a 2020 has been big for everyone, um, <laughs> especially Steve Green. So I'm going to quote, I'm going to read from an NPR article from March of 2020. Um, that's, that goes a months long analysis of alleged pieces of the ancient Dead Sea Scrolls that are on display at a privately funded museum in Washington, D.C. has revealed them to be clever forgeries, according to a team of researchers examining the fragments. Using 3D and scanning electron microscopes and microchemical testing, a group of independent researchers concluded that all 16 fragments housed at the Museum of the Bible purported to be part of the collection of ancient Hebrew manuscripts that were inscribed on leather rather than the ancient parchment used in the authentic scrolls, which date a few centuries before the birth of Jesus Christ. After discovering that the remaining fragments were fakes, the investigators turned to the question of how they might have been fabricated. Um, and they say, quote, one interesting possibility is that pieces of Roman era leather shoes, which have been found at a number of archaeological sites from this period, might have served as the substrate for some of the forgeries. This is that really is the most interesting part to me. Like when, when we talk about forgeries and stuff, just the how, like how do you age something or how do you use materials to convince people that your fakes are real? Like that's really what and well, I, so I saw that piece and went, oh, and often what happens in situations like this is they take a, a a for a counterfeiter will take something that is authentic, authentic, but very dull like something like very like mundane and and like then shoes. like sh- like shoes like if you have like a ton of extant leather uh roman leather sandals um you got a ton of that but those aren't interesting what is interesting is a making scroll yeah. making them a dead sea scroll yeah. so if if it's it's a good you know you're, you're flipping it's, it's you're it's upcycling. like antiqui- antiquity's flipping yeah so um going to re- tell you a little bit more about this and this comes from smithsonian mm-hmm. the report does not cast doubt upon the authenticity of the dead sea scrolls held by the israel museum in jerusalem these artifacts are i've seen them these artifacts are among the most precious relics <laughs> okay. of the ancient world first discovered in 1947 at a cave in qumran been there near the shores of the dead sea <laughs> dated to around 2000 years ago most of the scrolls were written in hebrew though some were penned in aramaic and greek Today, they survive mainly as thousands of small fragments. The scrolls are typically divided into three categories based on their contents. Biblical, being content copies of the books of the Hebrew Bible. Apocryphal, being manuscripts of works that were not included in the Jewish biblical canon. They, they hit the cutting room floor. <laughs> yeah. And sectarian, and these being biblical commentaries, liturgical texts, apocalyptic writings, among others. So I they found like those. my diaries. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, during the 1950s, an antiquities dealer named Khalil Iskander Shaheen, or Kondo, began buying Dead Sea Scroll fragments from local Bedouin and selling them to collectors. In 2002, the arrival of 70 new items injected a new spark into the market. The Kondo family was rumored to be selling relics that had long been hidden away in a vault in Switzerland. Mm. Green sourced his Dead Sea Scrolls from this post-2002 collection. In 2016, prominent biblical experts published a book of about 13... A book about 13 of the museum's fragments, drawing on scholarly analysis but not scientific testing, reports Sarah Cascane of Artnet News. The new report suggests that these experts were duped by modern forgeries. Um, and Colette Lull, founder of Art Fraud Insights and leader of this investigative team, um, is quoted by Artnet News saying, After 2,000 years, leather and parchment look very similar. Until you do a high magnification analysis, as well as a chemical and elemental analysis, you can't really tell the difference. Yeah. Um, so, and, and so another common, this is, this is, hits on a lot of like the, the classic notes of an art crime, um, having things that have been hidden away in a vault in Switzerland. A lot of stuff, a lot of stuff that comes onto the market comes through Switzerland because, you know, Switzerland is as stereotyped as being neutral. Yeah. (laughs) Like that sort of, but. And and full of vaults. Well, it's neutral because it neutral isn't a neutral term no it's um, not. they they're they're very equal opportunity and so you have a lot of stuff a lot of stuff that is is trafficked mm-hmm. or is is stolen or or repossessed or however you want to package it a lot of a lot of things that have been ill-gotten end up chilling in switzerland they lay low so you'll have stuff that's there 15 to 20 years and then it'll yeah. show up in um in um art art houses once it's in, not hot anymore yeah in the uk or in new york um and so that's actually another thing that um i think this was last year maybe the year before that um hobby lobby also <laughs> the green family um agreed to give back 11,500 antiquities that had been yep. smuggled. So um, Hobby Lobby funds ISIS. Yep, they do. There's I mean, they really, did. Yeah. They, they they actively did. They have, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's really, I mean, and that's, we're not sort of casting aspersions. That is a no, fact. That, no, so that is, by. yeah, that, it's, uh, that is not hyperbole. No. Nope. <laughs> like, you can follow they, the money to that that things that are um like smuggled antiquities and stolen antiquities uh, that are, that are looted are from often Iraq and yeah. from Iraq yeah from Iraq and and sort of southern Syria um they have been tied to funding the the ISIL groups so yeah. Like, that's what they actually did because, you know, there are all those very famous um, videos that they put out of them, like smashing um, like a Syrian, like Lamashu statues and things. But like they also pocketed a bunch of stuff so that they could sell it. Yep. Because. And the Greens bought it. Yep. (laughs) So that is some solid scamming. But unfortunately, the profits from that scam likely as we said, went towards the funding of extremist groups. So while on one hand, we can appreciate a grift, 
On the other hand, the consequences are potentially devastating. So, you know, it's uh, it's a double-edged sword, really, talking about art crimes, because on one hand, it's really fascinating, like how <laughs> the crime is done. It's a double-edged sword in that both edges of those swords are very sharp. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, it, yeah, it's really, really kind of fascinating how forgeries are made, at least to me, I don't know. I don't know if you're as into this as I am, but how forgeries are made and how people get tricked, just sort of knowing that is really interesting to me. But then on the other hand, you know, you have things with consequences like this. Not great. So it's rare on this podcast that we talk about a single individual, but that's actually going to happen a couple times on this episode. Um, and in this case, it's an opportunity to discuss a man who's known as one of the most prolific and notorious former forgers, and it became a family business. So this the story takes place in the UK. So I'm going to start by quoting from The Independent. Um, when curators at the British Museum were approached in 2005 by an elderly man with a broad Lancashire accent asking for their opinion on a fragment of an Assyrian stone frieze that he said had been in his family since 1892, they had every reason to believe he was just the latest genuine enthusiast to seek their expertise. Only when George Greenhall, an 84-year-old former technical drawing instructor from Bolton, hinted that the family would be willing to part with their prized artifact for £500,000 that the experts' concerns about the authenticity of 2,700-year-old art turned into full-blown suspicion. On closer inspection, they noticed that the carving of a bearded horseman leading two steeds was it Kikuli? Supposedly part of a documented bas-relief presented to the Assyrian monarch Sennacherib for his, quote, palace without equal. No, it's like a good 900 years after, like, so like, like seven, just, 900 years after. I'm sorry. I just, I am dying. I'm, I'm just, familiar with Sennacherib's oeuvre. Mm, mm-hmm, indeed. Uh, anyway, Sennacherib was in what is now Iraq, showed untypical harnesses and, crucially, a spelling mistake in the ancient Mesopotamian script. Oopsies. The museum I mean, contacted... <laughs> been there. Yeah, right. Then again, you're not Assyrian, so... Uh, then again, I'm not forging. <laughs> yeah, that's also true. The museum contacted Scotland Yard's Art and Antiques Unit, which in turn began an 18-month investigation into Greenhall, his 83-year-old wife, Olive, and their 47-year-old son, Sean, an antique dealer. From a monumental Roman silver tray, supposedly dug up in Derbyshire in the 1720s, to paintings by L.S. Lowry, to a sculpture by Barbara Hepworth, the family was responsible for a cottage industry producing at least 120 forged artworks, which, if they had all been sold at market rates, would have been worth about £10 million. Some items were so perfectly executed by Sean Greenhall that they fooled experts at leading auction houses and museums. And so the following is from an Artnet interview with Sean Greenhall prior to a release of his memoir, A Forger's Tale. So Greenhall's first source of income came from selling pot lids and clay pipe busts that he made at school and sold at local flea markets, telling buyers they were antiques and he had dug them up. And this was when he was about 13. Um, in the early 1980s, Greenhall met an art restorer whom he knew as Tom, who commissioned copies from him throughout the decade. Tom fabricated provenances for the forgeries and sold them at a markup. Eventually, Greenhall began to feel exploited, and the two had a falling out. That's when he began selling his forgeries to dealers himself. And he said, quote, I thought, I've been selling stuff for living prices, but not proper money. They're all doing it. I have the ability. They don't. They profit. I don't. I was bitter, and now I knew how to do the provenances. End quote. 
He put tells into his copies to test dealers, but his provenance forging skills soon reached the level of his technical ability. And so he said, quote, no, many, no matter how many mistakes, dealers were always blown away by the provenance. Often, they hardly looked at the work, end quote. And so in the, at this point, I, and I think this probably will come up again in this episode, but like copies, forgery is one thing, but copies are not actually necessarily forgeries if you present it as a copy. So at what point, you know, is art, how do we define art? How do we give art its value? And how do we determine what has value intrinsically and what doesn't? Because if you give me a perfectly beautiful painting and tell me it's by Michelangelo, that's going to have more value than if it's the exact same beautiful painting that, that Sean Greenhall did. Yeah. It's, it has the same sort of physical attributes and yet not the same value, which is always kind of a, a squiggly deal for me. Um, yeah. Well, and then also um, something that's very common in um, classical art is you have Roman copies of probably Greek originals. Right. Which don't exist anymore. Exactly. And, and so the Roman art or technically a forgery not, or a copy. It's, it's, tech, it's technically not an original because a lot of times we have um, the, the the Roman copies are in marble when the mm -hmm. Greek original would have been in bronze. And so yeah, it would have was been melted, melted down. down and reused. Yeah. So, you know, and those Roman artifacts are they're prized because they're old and because they have sort of the the gleam of the classical world on them. But you know, someone else in 2020 could sculpt something just as beautiful, I imagine. And what would we think of it? I don't know. Anyway, um, Sean Greenhall was eventually arrested and served four months and eight years in prison for his crimes. Between against art. Against art, um, which those crimes were. Between 1978 and 2006, this softly spoken artist created several hundred exquisite forgeries. Some sold to English royalty. He claims a silver gilt Christ in the 12th century English style is still part of the royal collection. And others gifted to presidents. A terracotta bust of Thomas Jefferson, which was owned by Bill Clinton. And many more to museums. Greenhall's talent was broad. One month he was an Egyptian granite carver. The next, an impressionistic sculptor. The next, an American watercolorist. Which, that in itself is really amazing. Just yeah. like, to, to possess that level of technical skill in multiple media. Yeah. Really and like you could um, use your powers for good if you worked in like restoration and conservation or like creating copies for study or. He does now. He is occasionally commissioned. Oh, he went, he went for, straight. Yeah. He, he's gone legit now um, and occasionally produces pieces, like copies of things to be used in like BBC productions, stuff like that. Yeah, that's. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so Greenhall shrugs off compliments saying, quote, I don't have delusions of grandeur, end quote. He says his versatility is a function of what he describes as his low threshold for boredom. Tonight, he will do his night shift at a local bakery, one of the few places he has been able to find work thanks to his crim criminal record. Quote, I view my life as a failure. I went the wrong way. I could have done something useful. If I could have my time again, I'd like to be a teacher at an art college, he said. So, you know... I think it's just a question of talent that was used in, in maybe the wrong way, but it does seem like he has a prodigious talent and it seems like now he's using it sort of on the straight and narrow. Um, so that's, and it, uh, one of the articles that I read about him said 
that, you know, he's, he's this incredibly versatile artist in terms of the media that he can work in, but it said that he can't, he like quote, can't find his own style, which I thought was kind of poignant. Like Mm. he spent so much time sort of copying the masters that he doesn't have his own voice so much, but then again, he has this amazing skill and maybe he doesn't need his own voice. Maybe it's just sort of emulating other styles. That's, that's his real talent. Anyway, while we ponder that, we can have a quick ad break and then come back and talk about more crimes. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. All right. Well, now that we've come to a point where we're feeling feelings, maybe that's just me. <laughs> Did you know that there's a museum full of fake art? intentionally <laughs> that's a good that's a good qualifier to put in there <laughs> yeah it's the Thalscher Museum in Vienna Austria and here's a blurb from their website homepage the Vienna Counterfeiting Museum is unique in Europe and probably even worldwide. Spectacular crime stories about the real fake works of notorious counterfeiters. The visitor is entertainingly informed about the differences between original, copy, and forgery, because copies are not forgeries. One learns, among other things, why the most famous English counterfeiter hid time bombs in his fakes another was murdered under mysterious circumstances a fake turkey in germany's history wrote that there are now false counterfeits and much much more i don't know what the fake turkey is about it might have been i don't know did you is this in english on their website no it's in german and then you can click a tab that says would you like to see this in english and i was like yes i do oh so it's google translate this got google translated yeah it did so I don't know if it's a fake turkey. Uh, that I, I, might be idiomatic. <laughs> but I like to think it's a turkey, just like a German turkey. Oh, my God. Okay. And this is a museum for which you don't have to be an art lover to find it exciting. <laughs> they nailed that part of the translation. Uh, um, yeah, so on websites, when you do the, like, you yeah, read this in multiple I, languages. It's <laughs> I know at, at work, somebody like had a freak out about how terrible the website was when you read it in other languages. He's like, I read it in multiple languages in which I'm fluent and they were all terrible. And everyone's like, who's this guy? 
That was just an opportunity for you to brag. Oh, that guy was terrible. (laughs) (laughs) So, so at the Felsher Museum, their collection on the website includes four categories. Fake styles. Is this also Google Translate? No, like things in the style of other things. No, 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 no. Well, just like... (laughs) No. Fake styles, falsifications, copies, and strange. Yep. Uh, Obviously, we smashed that strange button. And that's where we learned about a man named Conrad Kuyao, who, in the early 1980s, tried out one heck of a grift. Yep. And so I'm going to read from um, Sally McGrain's article in the new yorker from 2013 entitled diary of the hitler diaries mm-hmm. on april 25th 1983 stern magazine the german answer to life held a press <laughs> conference to make sensation make a sensational announcement their star reporter had discovered a trove of hitler's personal diaries lost since a plane crash in 1945 now stern would begin publishing what he'd found the magazine claimed that the diaries, of which, remarkably, there had been no previous record, <laughs> first flag, <laughs> would require a major rewriting of Hitler's biography and the history of the Third Reich. The handwritten volumes included everything from descriptions of flatulence and halitosis, Ava says I have bad breath, to an account of Braun's hysterical pregnancy in 1940, meaning that she wasn't actually pregnant. Right. Yeah, not that she was pregnant and nuts about it. She was, yeah, she was n- not pregnant and hysterical. The pregnancy was itself a hysterical reaction. I guess all pregnancies are kind of hysterical in that they are in the uterus. Hey, see what you did there. Yeah. Except, and, e- except ectopic ones, which are not hysterical. To no, be medically correct. Nor are they funny. Nope. Did I bring and, down the mood? Yeah. Because <laughs> this, this next sentence stays in that same I know, mood. So. I know. I was just like, Go ahead. And a revelation that a surprisingly sensitive Hitler didn't know what was happening to the Jews. Should have been a tip off. <laughs> what? Two weeks later, the diaries were exposed as fakes and not particularly good ones written at great speed by Conrad Kuyao, a small time crook and prolific forger. Yeah. And I should say, uh, Conrad Kuyao was um, the child of two members of the Nazi party. He was a tremendous Nazi sympathizer who idolized Hitler. So a lot of what went into these diaries about like sensitive Hitler didn't really know what was happening to the Jews. It was sort of a fanboy writing Hitler's diaries. It was fan fiction, really. Anyway, keep going. 30 years later, the Hitler Diaries hoax is still the biggest scandal to have hit German journalism after 1945. <laughs> <laughs> Recently, Desait published a diary of the diaries written shortly after the debacle by Felix Schmidt, one of Stern's three editors in chief at the time, and the only one of the three still living. Yep. So, okay. Um, Schmidt's account joins a host of film documentaries, books, court cases, and the 1992 satirical film, Stonk! <laughs> there and, is an exclamation point. <laughs> and trying to make sense of what happened. The story of the scandal is fascinating, not least because it reflects a mindset about the Third Reich that seems somewhat remote in today's Germany. In recent years, Hitler has been, re- has been surfacing in popular culture as a comedic buffoon, the butt of a dark joke, the kind that emerges with historical distance. He's back. 
a satirical novel about Hitler waking up in present day Berlin and becoming a media star just hit number one on the bestseller list. A popular TV show has a recurring sketch in which a bumbling Hitler plays the Steve Carell role in a twisted version of The Office. Yeah, I am deeply uncomfortable about all of these things. And so is Calypso, apparently. (sighs) She's I'm assuming there's a dog in the world. And she wants to tell you about it. Yeah. Yeah. She's just like, what about, look at me. Look at me. Um, <laughs> she's upstairs. Yeah. Um, if today's Hitler as laughable idiot causes discomfort, the idea of a Hitler who kept diary seems, in Schmidt's account, to have inspired a kind of collective insanity in the upper echelons of Stern's editorial offices 30 years ago. Schmidt's text begins... It is the 13th of May, 1981. I've been editor-in-chief, one of three, for Stern for for some four months when I asked my secretary to go get Gerhard Heidemann, a journalist in the contemporary history section, in my office within half an hour. Heidemann, a man seldom to be found in the newsroom, who often disappears for weeks without leaving any indication of his destination or contact address, once again, cannot be found. Yeah, so I cut out several paragraphs here, but it's it's Heidemann who claims to have found these diaries. Okay. I got to get me a job like that. <laughs> Just Do disappear I? for a while. <laughs> yeah. That's your job. Oh man. Yeah. Uh, Schmidt writes that he and the two and the other two chief editors, Rolf Gilhausen and Peter Koch, were called into the office of the magazine's publisher, where a half dozen notebooks lay on the table. These, they were informed, had belonged to Hitler. Now, a side note here. Mistaking the Gothic F for an A, Kuyao had accidentally labeled each notebook's back black cover FH instead of AH, a detail that failed to put anyone on alert. <laughs> Um, other editors had been dealing with the publisher in secret. Schmidt, Koch, and Gilhausen were not amused, but were drawn into the story nonetheless. It was a major scoop. And the publishers had already sunk as much as a million Deutschmarks into the purchase. In April 1982, the editors-in-chief learned that far more than 27 diaries existed. The Fuhrer was increasingly communicative, <laughs> writes Schmidt. <laughs> Uh, going to say, quote, the notebooks were growing fatter and getting more and more expensive. All in all, Stern's publisher spent 9.3 million Deutschmarks to acquire some 60 volumes. The editor showed examples from the diaries to handwriting experts in New York and Bern, but the comparisons they provided had also been forged by Kuyak. <laughs> Just, it's a farce. <laughs> Like, um, I, I know they were, it was, they were discovered as fakes within like two weeks, but what a two weeks. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Desites editor-in-chief Giovanni Di Lorenzo uh, is quoted saying, people still want to know, how could this happen? <laughs> I'm one of those people. Um, Harald Welzer, a social psychologist, agreed that this scandal could only have happened in a period in which Germans had fixated on Hitler as a way of ignoring the fact that the German population was complicit in the horrors of the Nazi era. He told Desai, interestingly, the diary scandal took place during a period of historical political upheaval. In 1979, a year before the Stern story got rolling, the American series Holocaust played on German TV. That began a process that has 
been completed today. The mass murder of the Jews was brought to the forefront of the collective consciousness. And he said that this acknowledgement of a national guilt helped Germans free themselves of their Hitler fixation. Now, he added, Germans have the ability to deal with Hitler satirically. Woof, huh? <laughs> right? I just thought this was such a, an interesting story, both in terms of what Kuya was able to get away with and also yeah, just sort of what it says about how an entire nation deals with the fallout from yeah. something like that. Yeah. Uh, and that latter part isn't funny at all, but it's no. very interesting. But the former part is sort of really hits at, to me, it really hits at what satire actually is and is supposed to be like yeah like satire is scathing yeah and it's made it's it's meant to force you to examine things that make you uncomfortable yeah it's not necessarily just making fun of something yeah or or just and it's certainly not like it's not meant to be celebratory no no satire is criticism yeah uh, so while we all digest that, we're going to have just, one more. I think it's the, the letters, the like F-H the is like what gets it to me. It's just like, come on. Yeah. Uh, Conrad Kuyao's Wikipedia page for anyone who's interested in learning more about him is just, it's something. It sure is something. Okay. So while we all digest all of that, we're going to have one more quick ad break and then we'll be back. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. All right. We're back again. Now, so far, there have been a mix of consequences for the crimes we've described. Conrad Cuyao was certainly a man of questionable morality, along with Sean Greenhall. But as we discussed up top with the Hobby Lobby scandal, sometimes the roots of art crimes can be much more serious and insidious, especially where the antiquities trade is concerned. So I'm going to quote here from the media line from an article in 2018. While the global illegal antiquities trade might be booming, governments in several countries are increasing their efforts to combat it by refusing to borrow artifacts of dubious origin. The growing push for verified provenance is part of a wider trend towards, quote, clean exhibitions at cultural institutions, which are trying to avoid getting embroiled in legal battles and supporting looters. So with this sort of last section here, not only did I want to talk about art crimes and, and what sort of what those constitute and some particularly interesting stories from the world of art crime and forgery, but also what people do about it. So, no, I think also I need to interject here and say, Royal getting in legal battles and supporting looters lately 
Because most yes. of the things yes, 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 yes. in these cultural institutions have, in fact, been looted. Yes. Oh, yeah. The, I the, I left out a whole thing on the Elgin Marbles and the British Museum. And, yeah. yeah. Most there's, things there's that like, are in museums did not get to that there country. <laughs> through like broken. A reliable no. yeah. path of provenance. No. Yes. Yes. We acknowledge that. But it is true also that that truth is being increasingly brought to the forefront of people's consciousness, much to the consternation of many of those cultural institutions. And uh, yeah, people are starting to try and do things actively about this. So Dr. Donnie Yates, a lecturer in antiquities trafficking and art crime at the University of Glasgow, more about the University of Glasgow later on, said, quote, some countries are beginning to refuse loans of major artifacts in their national collections for exhibitions that include dubious or contested antiquities, end quote. And she added that cultural institutions were also becoming increasingly cautious about borrowing potentially looted artifacts, saying, quote, if a museum requests a particular artifact for display, the Ministry of Culture in various countries requires a list of the other requests made for the same exhibition. If there are dubious pieces from museums or private collections on the list, the government can refuse them. It becomes a soft way of protesting the display of loot, end quote. With Islamic State's targeted destruction of numerous heritage sites across Iraq and Syria, and with the growing availability of ancient items for online sale, the issue of exhibiting illicit antiquities has gained importance. The extent of the problem is such that Neil Brody, a senior research fellow in endangered archaeology at the University of Oxford, estimated that, that of the roughly 100,000 antiquities up for sale online, up to 80% were either looted or fake. Archaeologist Tisha Verveer told the media line, quote, ISIS has systematically looted archaeological sites, producing a stream of antiquities sold directly over social media. For years, the antiquity markets, collectors and museums bought from illicit diggers, end quote. So I'm going to quote now from shareamerica.gov, which is... <laughs> yep. It's it was an IVLP program, which is an yes. um, international visitors leadership program. This is mm-hmm. this hits close to home. Yeah, I know. Um, I know. So what IVLP does is is bring um, leaders from other sovereign states to the U.S. and puts them in conversation with one another and with um, with you know key actors in the US and they exchange ideas and then they they go home and enact those things and we mm-hmm. we all learn from one another and shareamerica.gov is the um <laughs> repository the, the soft propaganda arm uh. of of the state department um yeah. and shareamerica.gov is who writes the puff pieces that get shared out on all of the um like the embassy Facebook pages and stuff like yeah. that. So it's just, it's a, this is all part of soft power of the state department of being like, America's all right. Look what they're doing. We're trying. <laughs> so, so, that's, so there's that. That's what that is. <laughs> all right. Well, this is, this is from 2017, the soft power 2017. In 2017, antiquities protectors from across the region which region, came to the United States recently to to hear how their American counterparts fight smugglers. They They traveled the country on a State Department arranged visit to meet with academics and experts from the Smithsonian Institution and other top museums. 
perhaps most beneficial of all, several visitors said, was that they had met each other for the first time and shared notes on stopping the black market trade and repatriating treasures. Esam Shihab of the Egyptian Ministry of Antiquities, whose duties include research in Luxor, the city on the Nile River in southern Egypt that surrounds ancient monuments of Egyptian pharaohs, said, quote, It's a great chance for me to hear about their programs, especially in the countries suffering from wars and conflicts, end quote. Experts from nine countries, Algeria, Bahrain, Egypt, Israel, Lebanon, Libya, Morocco, Tunisia, and the United Arab Emirates, and the Palestinian territories, participated in the three-week program. They met with State Department and Homeland Security officials who work on keeping looted objects out of the U.S. and protecting cultural heritage. They heard about enforcement mechanisms, including U.S. laws restricting imports from Iraq or Syria. An executive from the Sotheby's auction company spoke about its safeguards. They toured the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, the Metropolitan Museum in New York, and other cultural repositories to hear how curators document the provenance of their collections and see how they display treasures. And they learned from one another. Amir Ganor of the Robbery Prevention Division of the Israel Antiquities Authority said, quote, It's nice to hear others have the same problems and that it's not only yours. We can learn new methods, new tactics from each other, end quote. And Amber, I think you mentioned this, but the article sort of ended up by saying thieves may hang on to their loot for years before bringing it to market. A member of the Lebanese Ministry of Cultural, a member of the Lebanese Ministry of Culture's Directorate of Antiquities said some objects stolen during Lebanon's civil war were not marketed for a decade or longer. So once the once the uh, the heat is yeah. Once the people who know about it either no longer have that job, are dead, or have stopped looking. Yeah. Sort of a statute of limitations thing, but not really. It's, um, this is, this is like just scraping the surface. I mean, we could do, we could do a whole podcast on art crimes and, and, uh, the issues of cultural property and patrimony and repatriation and all of that. But this is merely one episode and one yeah. that we are going to wrap up by having a little recommendation station to two. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, let's, um, let's round out with, we could do a whole, po- a whole podcast on this, but instead we've just <laughs> done some other episodes of this podcast about it. So, um, we're doing our best. <laughs> yeah. So we can give you a call back to episode 10. Good Lord. Remember um, back when we had 10 episodes? <laughs> yeah. So a billion years ago, uh-huh. Uh, when we had episode 10 and so that was on hoaxes and that's when we talked about um the james ossuary uh i've seen where it's supposed to be <laughs> you've um, seen the space on the shelf yes <laughs> so um, it should occupy uh, as well as the the illustrious career of uh, one oda golan um as well as other forgeries like the persian princess uh, tragedy yeah. um so there's that episode. You can you can listen to that one. There's episode 55 um, with Schliemann and his lies mm. um, about Troy and other things. And and then more recently, you could go back and listen to the incredible interview that we did with Damian Huffer back on episode 79. Yeah. Remember, yeah. remember a billion years ago when we did episode 79? <laughs> yeah, seriously. Remember a billion years ago when I still went to work? um and then so we got a book we got some book club book club book club club. so this is a book about an early art or antiquities criminal art criminal it's criminal criminal question mark because this was the 1800s and oh yeah like 
Okay. Archaeology wasn't a thing yet. And so. So the book is entitled Belzoni, the giant archaeologists love to hate. Belzoni. Uh, And that's a biography of Giovanni Battista Belzoni, an early 19th century opportunist and explorer. Man, that is. What a title. That's that's the job I want. Dream job title. I feel like. An explorer. If I were an opportunist and explorer, I could also just not show up for weeks at a time and everybody be like, oh, she's, she's not here. She's exploring. <laughs> I'm going to make you business cards that say that. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, also, Belzoni, famous enough to have a town in Mississippi named for him. There's a Belzoni, Mississippi. Is it named for him? It is. Wow. Did yeah. He, right? Did he find it? Probably not. Is a. <laughs> But if he did, he would have stolen stuff from it. Okay. Well, this is from a um, New York Times book review. Mm-hmm. A quote, while granting that Belzoni may have been, may be what a colleague has called, quote, the most notorious tomb robber Egypt has ever known, end quote, um, Ivor Noel Hume, the former director of Colonial Williamsburg, Williamsburg's archaeological research program, also admits to a fondness for this indefatigable entrepreneur. Um, not a title I want. And while it's entirely possible to cringe at Belzoni's methods, blasting through walls with battering rams, crunching bones underfoot, and squashing mummies when he sat on them, <laughs> incising his name on ancient statues, <laughs> it's nearly impossible to resist the story of a life, as Hume puts it in the prologue to Belzoni, the giant archaeologist loved to hate, full of naivete, ambition, duplicity, avarice, and poverty worthy of Charles Dickens or Henry James, differing only in that it appears to be true yep so and then and it sounds like he was just so blasting through walls crunching bones under he was six foot six so he was this giant but to do those things yeah like he was this giant dude like shrek in his way through (laughs) the passages of egyptian pyramids um he worked before he became an opportunist and explorer he worked as a circus strongman so he was like a big guy so a lot of these uh, descriptions have have <laughs> words that just make him sound like a cannonball of a man. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Um, <laughs> but uh, and then to um, wrap up my stuff. Um, <laughs> uh, one last thing. You can go to futurelearn.com slash courses slash art hyphen crime uh and we'll have that linked on our show there you can quote delve into the seedy underbelly of the art world looking at smuggling theft fakes and fraud with this free online course uh, through the university of glasgow yeah as mentioned before so yeah they offer a free online course about art theft and art crime and i'm not sure how in-depth it is and i don't think they teach you how to do art theft and art Uh crime Dang. Sorry. Uh, and then, Anna, why don't you bring it home with um, a film recommendation for a film I've spent this entire episode trying to remember the details of. Oh. But I confused with I Love You, Alice B. Talkless. No. <laughs> Which it's, is it's a, for sure not that a one. very different Peter O'Toole film. Yeah. <laughs> No, this is the movie How to Steal a Million, which is absolutely not about <laughs> Alice B. Toklas. No, no, no I love is... you. Alice B. Toklas isn't about Alice B. Toklas. I, yeah. <laughs> it has nothing. Well, n- neither of these have. Anyway, <laughs> this particular one, How to Steal a Million, it, um, stars Audrey Hepburn and Peter O'Toole. And it's a film in which both forgery and art theft play a central role. And it's kind of a farce. It's a it's a farce slash caper and it's just absolutely charming yeah 
It's, it's, cute. it's a lovely movie. Yeah. And it's very sort of 1960s Rim. and you get to sort of see 1960s Paris and all the little, the little Renaults and Citroens poodling around the, the French roundabouts. It's, it's I also recommend, I love you, Alice V. Tuckless. That's Peter O'Toole and Peter Sellers. Those are two very good Peters. Among um, the best Peters. Yeah. Way up there on the list of Peters. Uh, and then just finally, um, if you are interested in sort of how law enforcement groups fight art crimes, on the show notes page, we will include the link to the FBI's art crime unit. And so here's the blurb from that. The FBI established a rapid deployment art crime team in 2004. The team is composed of 20 special agents, each responsible for addressing art and cultural property crime cases in an assigned geographic region. The art crime team is coordinated through the FBI's art theft program located at FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. Art crime team agents receive specialized training in art and cultural property investigations and assist in art-related investigations worldwide in cooperation with foreign law enforcement officials and FBI legal attache offices. The U.S. Department of Justice provides special trial attorneys to the art crime team for prosecutive, prosecutive, prosecutive support. I like support prosecutive. Par- it's, it's a sparkling, that's a sparkling support. Like Prosecco. Okay. Yep. Since its inception, the art crime team has recovered more than 15,000 items valued at over 800 million U.S. dollars. And it was founded um, in response to the sacking of the Bogazab Museum, right? Yeah. That's going to do it for us this week. Thank you all, as usual, for listening. And we will be back in your ears very soon with more content and hopefully more live events so if you're listening to this when it comes out yeah maybe less barking can't guarantee that um if you're listening to this when it comes out um we will have already done our very first inaugural live stream over on our twitch channel twitch.tv slash the dirt podcast but we will be doing more and we're recording the audio when we do these so we will release that at another time yeah yeah we'll we'll put it out for the folks that aren't that are sleeping while we're I know recording. it's impossible to pick a perfect time when everyone's awake but uh, that's what that's what you get for being a podcast with international listeners I know oh. and you can find us on social media as well on Facebook we are at the dirt podcast on Twitter we're at dirt podcast and on Instagram we are at the dirt pod and you can find all of that over on our website thedirtpod.com where you also can find all those episodes that I told you about a couple minutes ago as well as all the other episodes and there's there you can find links to get to get shirts maybe you're running out of laundry yeah we can't provide you get a new shirt dirt themed underwear but we can we got your shirts sweatshirts mugs all that yeah wear a mug a tiny hat (laughs) shut up (laughs) (laughs) thanks for listening everybody we love you goodbye goodbye This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.